Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Lighthouse Bible Church. Let's begin our service today by entering into prayer together. Heavenly Father, we just want to come this this morning and thank you again for all that you have done for us. We praise you for who you are. We praise you for your righteousness and your justice and your power and your love. And Father, this morning we would ask that the Holy Spirit would guide and direct all that we will be doing today. The hearing of God's word, the fellowship with one another, the giving, the singing. We pray, Father, for all those members of the body of Christ who are suffering. Members of our congregation, folks in the United States of America and all around the world, especially in persecuted countries. We pray, Father, for your strength and guidance and comfort. We also pray, Father, that the other members of the body of Christ would rally to their aid. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Please stand and join us for song service. Good morning again, everyone. Before we get started with today's message from God's Word, I have a few things to mention. The first one is that this month we've been featuring the missionary organization, Mission Aviation Fellowship. I think by now many of you have heard what they're all about, so I'll be brief today. They just use technology, aviation, planes, to reach those who would be unable to be reached in any other way. And they bring help, they bring food and medicines, but of course they mostly bring the gospel of Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and he died for all their sins and was buried and then he rose from the dead three days later and then all they got to do is believe in Jesus Christ and they have eternal life. They bring that message. And again, to people who otherwise would be really difficult to reach with that message. So please pray for them. Their website, visit it, www.maf.org. And if you can help in any way, well, do that. That's a, the calling of the church is to evangelize throughout the whole world. Not everybody will do that in, in the sense of they're not called to actually go everywhere in the world. But every member of the body of Christ is called to support that missionary activity, even if you're not called directly. So how do we do that? Well, we do that by prayer, first and foremost. We also do that by financial support. And also, when, when and if we have an opportunity to actually step in and assist in some way. And they have a lot of opportunities for that as well. You'll find all of that on their website, www.maf.org. Well, scheduling, we uh, will be having our summer break Monday, August 5th, coming right up through Sunday, August 11th. It's a Monday through Sunday. So we will have service next Sunday. That's actually August 4th. For those of you that can't believe we're going into another month like me, we are. August 4th, first Sunday of the month, we're celebrating the Lord's Supper. But that'll be the last service um, until the following... Wait, no, never mind. I'm getting ahead of myself. So then that Monday through Sunday, that's our vacation time. Because of that, there won't be our Bible study. We have a Bible study every Thursday at 7. We won't have it on Thursday, August 8th. We'll have it this week, but the week after we won't. And of course, on Sunday, we won't be having service on Sunday, August 11th. So I hope that's all clear. Um, We have Bibles in the back if anybody needs one, because we will now be going to the Word of God. And I want to make sure that not only you hear the Word of God, but you also have an opportunity to see it in front of you. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and Jack in the back will bring you one. Don't be embarrassed. All right, so I usually don't call on people who are getting their Bible pointed out, so you can just do it. 
All right, let's get started. This is the title of today's message, and it comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 9. And it's a question. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Well, here's a picture of a soldier. And this soldier, is, he's there. His uniform has been given to him by the United States Army. He's being fed by the United States Army. He's being clothed. And he has a roof over his head or a tent, depending on situation. Um, and, oh, yeah, I know this guy, too. This guy right here in A. He's like the biggest kid right in the middle. You know, that's, you may know him, too, right? My son, Jack, he's actually in basic training right now. But they're giving him everything he needs. Thank God. We get no more educational bills, no more food. You know, it's like it's all being covered by the United States Army. Why? Because no soldier serves at his own expense. We're going to see why Paul says, asks that and many other questions this morning in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to see how it relates to the subject that was brought up in chapter 8 and will continue to be what Paul deals with all the way to chapter 11, verse 1. All right, at this time, I would ask you to please turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 1. We're smack dab in the middle of this letter now. Hard to believe, isn't it? We started in March, and we're all the way here to chapter 9, um, which is some kind of record for me. Usually it's six months on one chapter, but we're moving through this one because we would never finish. It's 16 chapters. So if I went at the usual pace, we'd be here, and we'll probably get raptured before, you know. Well, we're done with 1 Corinthians, but here we are, chapter 9, 1 Corinthians 9, starting in verse 1. All right, I'm going to read all the way through verse 14 this morning. It's a unit. He writes, Paul now writes, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal." the mark of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? And I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle the ox while he is threshing. You shall not prevent him from eating while he is threshing. The God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope, and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, and we did, Paul and Barnabas, the gospel of teaching, if we sowed the spiritual things in you, is it too much to ask if we reap material things from you? If others share that right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right. But we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ, the good news that Christ is our Savior. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar get their share from the altar. 
so also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. All right, let's set the stage for this passage that we just read together. Well, I read it and you listen. Remember in chapter 8, we were in chapter 8 last week, and we saw that chapter 8, the subject is the eating of things sacrificed to idols. Remember that? We saw that there were some who thought they had more knowledge and that they could eat meat sacrificed to idols because no idol is really anything and God is one. And yet Paul had to deal with that in connection with the danger that posed for other brothers and sisters and actually the danger that actually proposed to those who thought they had knowledge. And we saw last week that all of chapter 8, all of chapter 9, all of chapter 10, all the way to chapter 11, verse 1, is really all about that. It won't seem like that at times. We'll see today. I mean, you just listened to what, what we just read. I just read in 1 Corinthians 9. And you don't directly see him dealing with the subject of, moot, of eating meat sacrificed to idols, but he is. We're going to see what that, how that works today. He's dealing with this same subject in a different way. He's dealing with the meaning of what he said in chapter 8. So today we're in chapter 9. And it appears, if you just read chapter 9 all by itself, it really looks like its own new subject. It's really, it really looks like Paul being called to preach the gospel and all that he had to sacrifice and do because of that. And it is that, to be sure. But it's also right in the center of these three chapters. It's actually here, though you may not see it right away, to advance further Paul's argument about meat sacrificed idols. Remember the message that he gave at the end of chapter 8. We'll look at this in a moment. But his real message here was that our love for God and our love for one another will cause us to give up our rights and suspend our freedoms at times. We have, why are we given freedom after all? Is it just to serve ourselves? Galatians, right? Don't, don't use it as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. We've been given our freedom to give it to the brethren. The same thing with our rights. Our rights should be used in the service of one another and in the worship of God. And he's trying to make that point in chapter 8 concerning the eating of meat sacrificed to idols. Don't just tell me about what you have the freedom to do as if that's all that matters is you and your freedom. Look at the bigger picture. Look at how what you do relates to God and His glory. Look at how what you do relates to others around you. That's really the calling that we have. And sometimes that means giving up your rights and suspending our freedoms at times. Very countercultural today. Today in the world, we are told to stand up for our rights, fight for our rights, engage our freedoms. You know how often I pick on commercials, right? There's this one commercial, I forget, you know, half the commercials I see now are about uh, going these exotic places, you know, these, these vacation destinations. And this one in particular was saying, basically saying, you, can, you have the right to get everything you want. You have the freedom to do whatever you want. That was the message. Now, we, our flesh loves that message, right? I mean, think about children. Imagine if you were a parent and you told your child, you know what? You have the right to do anything you want around here. And you have total freedom. I'm never going to step in and give you any rules, any boundaries, any of that. Can you imagine what that kid would be like in six months? Unless we think it's just an issue for the children, can you imagine what you'd be like in six months if all you did was indulge your flesh, just was for you, just for the freedoms that you have, and never think about anybody else, never think about what the consequences are? You know, at some point, we you know what they call that? 
a criminal. At some point, a person who just does that is a criminal. Because at some point, they're going to do things that are totally interfering with the, with the rights and concerns and the needs of other people. Not a Christian, though, that loves God and loves the brethren. That's not our calling. Well, chapter 9 actually will present Paul's absolutely most powerful argument about that, the meaning. And we'll see what that means. If you think about arguments, if you think about someone trying to convince you of something, what is the one thing, and I'll answer this, the one, what's the one way of convincing somebody that is more powerful than any other way? I'll just ask the question. I'll show it to you in a little while. It's here. It's chapter 9. We'll see what, why that is. Some things, this is the message though, are more important than our rights and our freedoms. You know, we think about the soldier, right? They have, they're citizens, they have rights, they have freedoms. What do they do? They give up their freedom for something greater, right? The common good. They're protecting the country and so forth. So that's, that's the principle. In here though, it's not a military situation, it's the furthering of the gospel. The well-being of our brothers and sisters. That'll involve giving up our freedom, our rights. Our time, our treasure, all of that can be involved in helping another believer in Christ. So now Paul realized that the Corinthians weren't doing that. Haven't we seen that already? Haven't we seen it many times that Paul had to deal with their selfishness, their arrogance, not thinking about the other person, boasting, having rivalries and factions in the church, not considering the effect that their behavior will have on others, all of that, that's been most of what Paul's been dealing with all the way up till now. So they weren't living like this. And what does that mean? Well, they're supposed to and they're not. So Paul wants them to change. There's a lot of changing that goes on as a Christian. You know, we, we love the fact, and it's true, that in God's eyes, forever and ever, we're perfectly righteous. We're His children. We like that. Of course we do. And it's true. At the same time, though, all right, there's a gaping hole between that, and by the way, that's God's vision. That's God's desire. That's God's understanding of the final picture, right? But we look at the real picture, and we realize that we are far from the ideal that the Father has laid out for us. So what does that mean? If we, if we have a place that we're supposed to be and we're not there, we have to change the direction we're going in so that we get there. It's changed, a lot of changes, most of internal, changing how we think. But it should lead to changing in how we behave. And Paul is don't, is, wants them to do both of those things. He wants them to change how they think, in particular here, about meat sacrificed to idols. It's not a problem we have too often today, although in some religions they still do that. But we need to change too. We have so many places where we're so narrow and only focused on ourselves and our own lives and our own needs. And we need to change that so that we see other people. See how that impinges on their rights sometimes because of ours. We have to see how God looks at things. And one of the things that has been a challenge to me lately is to, is to do that. Is to, is to just stop for a minute when I'm all worked up about somebody or something and I have a right to be, you know. And then, then I realize, you know what, there's a better answer here than where I'm going. I'm going to the, I have this inner Pharisee. I don't know if any of you have this too, but I do. I have this part of me on the inside. All it wants to do is judge and condemn and hate and all of that. I do. Oh, a pastor? Well, guess what? Maybe you don't. But I doubt it. Right? We all have areas of weakness. Some of us are more into one thing than the other. 
But see, the thing about it is, is that, you know, one thing about a Pharisee, he's got zero love. Zippo. And I have to understand that when that starts to creep up, I've got to shift. I've got to change my thinking in that moment and say, you know what? How do I apply love to this person instead? How does that change things? How do I, in other words, look at this person more like God does? See, that involves change. How do we get there? We get there by letting the Word of God do its work. To let it, to let it convict us, rebuke us, challenge us, and then build us up again. All right? That's how it works. By the way, that's what, how the army works. I'm learning that. First thing they do with these poor little victims is just to crush them, in a, in a sense, to, to knock them down, to get rid of their arrogance, to take away what's familiar, right? Break them down so they can what? Build them up again. Word of God does that to us. Not pleasant. A lot of people run away from the Word of God. A lot of people will hear a message, maybe from this pulpit, that is convicting and rebuking, and that's it. You won't see them again. Right? That's the human reaction. But God, of course, realizes that's the dumbest thing you could do. Because, look, he knows about us better than anybody. He loves us more than anybody. He, you know, he says that if you go with my program, this will work. There'll be some person suffering. There'll be some even persecution at times. But you, when you endure that, you'll develop patience and you'll develop character. And that'll give you the real hope that you don't have yet. So this is, this, is what, this is how God works. This is how Paul is working through his letters. He wants them to change how they think. How do you change how you think about what you think you have the right to do? And here, it's, again, it's meat sacrificed to idols, the eating of it. And then he wants them to change how they behave. In chapter 8, he's teased that up. But see, now in chapter 9, he moves on. And he's basically saying to them, I've just laid out the vision now I'm going to show you how it's done. I'm going to show you how it's done. By the way, that's a powerful argument. In other words, don't just listen to what I tell you. See it in action in my life. How many people tell us things, but then they don't actually model those things? That is not a very good argument. It's why the Lord puts a lot of emphasis on the men who will preach on the fact that their lives ought to match what they're saying. Otherwise, it's really not a very good witness. It's not powerful. All right? Paul understood that. And he says, if I'm going to convince these people that they have to change and sacrifice their rights at times in order for the well-being of others and to glorify God, well, I'd be a hypocrite if I weren't doing the same thing. But of course, the fact is he, was, he had been doing that all along. And now he's just pointing that out to them. He's saying, see it in action. We always need that. I've quoted this before, but in my opinion, the greatest college basketball coach of all time, his name is John Wooden. And he he had like, I don't know how many, I think he had seven NCAA championships in a row. And what did he say about his young people? He said, you know what, they have too many critics. They don't need another critic. What they really need is role models. And that remains all the more true today. And I don't want to get into a sociological issue right now, but a lot of the trouble we're having in this country with our young people doesn't have to do with them not being criticized enough. It has to do with them not being given role model to see, oh, that's how it's done. A young man growing up without a father doesn't have anybody to look at to say, oh, that's how it's done. Role models. That's what Paul is doing in chapter 9. 
Now, once again, because it's one big argument, I do, I really do encourage you to read this section complete. 8, 9, and 10, chapters 8, 9, and 10, and then the first verse of chapter 11. Because you see, chapter 9 really begins with the last verse of chapter 8. Let's see that now. Just, you're already pretty much there, so just look back one verse. So, oh, somebody have to turn the page to get to that one? I didn't realize that. My Bible is right there. 1 Corinthians 8.13 Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Paul's saying, listen, I'm willing to not only eat, give up meat sacrificed to idols, but all meat, if I have to, in order that my brother wouldn't stumble. See the priority there? He's much more focused on his brother than he is on any rights he has. Okay? Uh, this would be a good message for Peter this morning, right? People in the, whatever that stands for. Right? No more meat. Okay. Well, anyway. But, you know, his point here is so that he will not cause his brother to stumble. There's the principle. He would give up all meat forever. He would do it. Why? In order to prevent a brother from falling into a pit. And he may be exaggerating for effect, but he's also given us the mind of Jesus Christ. Please turn to Philippians chapter 2, starting in verse 3. We're going to read these two verses. That's Jesus's, that's how he thinks. Only in Jesus' case, he says, all my brothers and sisters have stumbled. They're in the darkness. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And I'm going to give up all my rights. I'm God the Son in heaven. I have everything. And I'm going to give up all of that. And I'm going to come to earth. And I'm going to be born into a lowly stable. A place where the animals lived. And I'm going to have this life where I'm rejected and abused and homeless. And I'm going to do it all. And at the end of it all, I'm going to allow the Roman government to crucify me on a cross. Because that's the only way I can save my brothers and sisters. So he, he, he lived this principle. And now Paul turns around and says, you know, you should do your same thing. You're not going to have to go on a cross. But there's things about your life that you ought to be willing to give up to sacrifice in the furtherance of the gospel and the needs of your brothers and sisters. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Can you just look at that for a second? Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. I'd kind of like to take that verse and plaster it on the Oval Office and in the halls of Congress. Right? Can you imagine how everything would change if they just did that? Do nothing any longer from selfishness or empty conceit or arrogance. Nothing. Nothing. Instead, what? With humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Regard one another as more important than yourselves. This is Christ's way of thinking, right? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, sure, it's easy to pick on the president and the Congress because it's like right in your face. It's on every television network and C-SPAN and everything else. But how about you and I? How about you and I? What we still do from selfishness, what we still do out of our arrogance how we reject humility in our lives, how we don't want to think of others as more important than ourselves. We want everybody to look at what we need. Don't you understand? Don't you know? 
By the way, that little person inside of you that does that, he's a miserable or she, a miserable, miserable person, causing you more grief than you could ever imagine. Because why? Because, you know, the, the, the more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you will be. The more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you will be. Okay? The more you focus on others, the happier you will be. The more you focus on Christ, that's the ultimate in terms of happiness. Of course, he's just going to turn around and say, now that you're focused on me, I want you to go and help your brothers and sisters. So it all ends up there anyway. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests. You know, you, you should probably check once in a while. Check your own thoughts and your own motivations and even your own behavior. And at the end of the day, ask yourself, what part of that was for the interests of others and what part of that was looking out for my own personal interests? That's a challenge. That's a rebuke. And I understand it because I get it too. You remember that. They got to remember that. I, I, usually I start preparing the message on Monday. And that's the worst day of the week for me. For a lot of reasons. But one of them is, is that I get confronted by the word of God for myself. And I got to work through that. A lot of, a lot of preparation you know, isn't, isn't just going into the books and going into the Greek or whatever. It's also having the word of God deal with me. And really, only after that am I, I have the right to get in front of you and preach it. Okay? Don't merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of other people. Our rights must give way to the needs of others. Our rights must give way to the needs of others. Jesus Christ's rights gave way to our needs. Our God said He will supply us all our needs. Why do we have to be totally focused on our own personal interests when God has already told us He's got us? What is that? You see, if we then, if we, if, if we then you know what, I'm going to take God at His word and I'm going to be more focused on the needs of others today. You're going to have a good day. Because the fact of the matter is, is that whether you realize it or not, you have absolutely very little control even have your own needs met. You ought to thank, I ought to thank my lucky stars every day that I was born in the United States of America. That built into that is many, most, if not all of my needs, my real needs met. You know, we have, we, we, we look at other ministries around the world. Pakistan, for example. I was just, this changed me forever when I really realized that my brother in Christ was going into the sewer every day and cleaning it up with no protection. You know? So, so we have to say, if God's given us everything we need, we better maybe just trust in that and spend time on the needs of other people. That's what it means to be a Christian, by the way. And it starts with how we see things. We've got we to change. Well, in, in chapter 9, if you go back now to 1 Corinthians 8.13, let's go back there. That's, that's really the passage we're looking at. Anytime we go somewhere else, realize what? We're going to go back. All right? So do something. You know, make sure you can get back easily. You know, sometimes the plane will take off again and you're not in your seat. You know. Now, notice, though, that, that he is now going to tell us this principle. Our rights must give way to the needs of others. He's challenged them with it. Now he's going to show how he operates under it. And in doing so, he's really just expanding on that point 
that he gave in chapter 8, verse 13. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Then let's go right into chapter 9. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? In other words, I just told you that if it's going to cause my brother to stumble, I'm never going to eat meat again. But let me tell you something. I have the freedom, he says, to do that. I'm volunteering to give it up. Um, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. You see, in chapter 9, Paul is going to argue a very strong argument, which is from the greater to the lesser. From the greater to the lesser. You know, you say to somebody, I love you. You really? Yeah, I do. I love you so much that I'm going to give up my, my needs. I'm going to stop going golfing and I'm going to stop watching all these TV shows and I'm going to, you know, a lot of that stuff, bad habits. I'll quit smoking. Why? For your needs, right? Now, if, I'm, if I do all of that in a manner of love, doesn't it follow from that that I'm going to do the little things? That's from the greater to the lesser. It's a great, strong argument. If I can do a hundred push-ups, and then tomorrow somebody says, hey, you're going up against Donald Trump in a push-up contest, all you got to do is ten. I'm going to win. Right? From the greater to the lesser is a really strong argument. What he's going to say is, hey, you know what? I'm an apostle. You think you have rights? You think you have liberties and privileges? Let me tell you about rights and liberties. You see, think about it. Whoops, did I skip one? I'm always skipping one. doesn't matter, I'm going to tell you anyway. He says, listen, he says, I have all the rights and privileges of an apostle. Of an apostle. And then in this chapter, he's going to list a whole series of them. And he's going to look at what the other apostles have as freedom and privileges and rights. He's going to talk about bringing a wife along. He didn't do that. We don't know if he was married or not. He probably wasn't. But in any event, the other apostles were bringing wives. By the way, he names Peter. I only say that because for those who may think that Peter was the first pope, you know, in that religion that says that no priest or pope can get married, <laughs> Peter was married, the first guy. So in any event, that's not, you know, that's just, um, but, but the thing about it is, is that he says, look, Peter brings his wife along with him. All the other apostles do. I really do have the right to do it if I want to because I'm an apostle. The other guys are getting their living, getting supported completely, all their needs met from the preaching of the word. They, they don't have to have a second job like I do. He even talks about his freedoms as a Christian, how he's given some of that up. And his very identity, we're not going to see this today, but next week, he's going to say, I'm willing to, to re, 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 release myself or or not allow myself to even have my own identity and instead I'm going to take on the identity of the people I'm preaching to so I may save some of them. That's pretty dramatic, don't you think? Again, in a culture today that's all about, look at my identity. You've got to pay attention to my identity. You've got to genuflect before my identity. Paul, on the other hand, said, I'm going to forget my own identity and I'm going to be whoever I need to be in order to save people. All of that. But all of that revolved around the fact that he had the liberties and he just didn't use them. He says, listen, I have all the rights and liberties of any other apostle. I have freely chosen, however, not to exercise those rights. Why? 
because he doesn't want to do anything. Remember chapter 8, verse 13. He wants to do nothing that could ever hinder the progress of the gospel. Man, that's focus. Man, that's purity when you think about it. He woke up every day not thinking about his aches and pains or his needs or what he's going to have for lunch. None of that. He woke up every day and what he was focused on was the progress of the gospel. That's really admirable. He said, I'm going to do whatever I have to do so that someone might be saved. By the way, Jesus did whatever he had to do so that someone might be saved. That's that's the ultimate person, of course, to model, right? That's the ultimate role model for all of us, Jesus Christ. His argument is this, since I sacrificed so many things in order not to hinder the gospel, surely you can sacrifice one thing to benefit your brother. Isn't that a strong argument? He's not just making it, though, in a vacuum. He's saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm sacrificing many things so I don't hinder the progress of the gospel. Come on, you can certainly sacrifice one thing to benefit your brother. Now, when you think about all these things that Paul was not... All the liberties he had as an apostle, well, you can imagine, and we know what we know about the Corinthians, some of them anyway, they were all into status, right? They were all into being better and having something better to brag about, not only in the church, but in their, in their city. And so you can imagine that when, they have, when their apostle wasn't taking the rights and privileges of other apostles, there were a lot of those Corinthians who were more than a little embarrassed about how their apostle was behaving. To them, it was shameful that their apostle was working with his hands. You know? I mean, I mean uh, think about it even today, right? If you think about uh, leadership, let's just say, I mean, you can pick any area of leadership. All right? not, we could talk about, you know, the church and all that, but let's talk about political leadership. Can you imagine, not when they're running for president in, in New Hampshire, okay, but can you imagine if every day the president left the Oval Office and he went down and he went to work in a factory? And then he came back at the end of the day and was president again. There'd be a lot of people who were like, Man, that's a shame. I'm kind of embarrassed that the leader of the free world is doing that. See, that's what they were saying about their apostle. It was a shame to them that he'd be working with his hands. The other apostles brought believing wives with them. What's wrong with Paul? You know, when he does these things, it makes him look like a second-class apostle. We deserve better. You see it? That's what they were thinking. By the way, this isn't the first time we've come across this. Remember in chapter 4? Go there. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. We've seen a lot of this already with Paul and Barnabas. Look at 1 Corinthians 4.9. Let's see all the things that Paul did, which was the opposite of what they expected. It's in a prominent apostle. In a time where there were these uh, gurus, I call them, in, in the Greek world that people would worship and honor and if yours was more prominent than the other, that meant you were more prominent than the others. And then yet, here's Paul. 1 Corinthians 4.9 But I think God has exhibited us, apostles last of all, as men condemned to death. Because we have become a spectacle to the world, both to angels and to men. We're fools for Christ's sake. 
but you are prudent in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You're distinguished, but we are without honor. To this present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty, and we're poorly clothed. And when we are reviled, I'm sorry, we're roughly treated, poorly clothed, roughly treated, and we're homeless. We toil, we work with our own hands. There it is. When we're reviled, and we are, we bless. When we're persecuted, we endure. These are all counter to all of the values of the Greek culture, by the way. They expected somebody who was reviled to fight back. Not, not Paul and Barnabas. When we are persecuted, we endure. When we're slandered, we try to conciliate. We have become as the scum of the world, the dregs of all things, even until now. They did not want to hear that about their apostle. Because to a status-conscious Corinthian, all of this was a real problem. They're like, this is, not, this is not really what we want out of this leader that we have. By the way, some things never change. When you preach what they want to hear, you can fill a stadium. Isn't that true? You preach what they want to hear, they lap it up, it's all about you, live your best life, prosperity, all of that. Oh, yeah, that's what I want to hear. I'm excited to go to church this morning. Because I may not be hearing anything about Jesus Christ and lay down my life, but it's going to be all about me, and after all, that's really what I want. You can fill a stadium with that teaching. And they do. However, when you preach the truth, it's a little different. Right? A little piano in the corner. The pastor's sitting up there. He's got the old-fashioned projector. And then you got some of the seats are empty. There's only about probably 40 seats there. And maybe you have 20 people. Right? Not very impressive. I'm sure a lot of people come in here, and they're like, not real impressed. You know, I mean, the building is great, but when they see like, oh, you know, the pastor doesn't, doesn't bring an animal on the stage, or he doesn't tell me how great I am for 15 minutes. Doesn't have a, have a big music festival where I'm hiring musicians and smoke and lights and mirrors and lightning and all that stuff. You know, we don't have that. We don't have that, right? We're just doing, oh, well, we all poor us. We're just preaching the truth. And there's nothing about us, by the way. You know, how, you know how easy it is to preach the truth? Just stay in the book. We were talking this morning. Uh, Raphael was talking about how he's doing a job and he's learning new skills. And like some of these, you know, he says, I, I, so he says, I finally figured out all I have to do is follow the instructions. That's all I got to do. That's all I have to do. You have to follow the instructions. So I'm not making an issue of me in this, but I am making an issue of priorities. Priorities, right? It's not status. It's not. It's the truth that sets us free. All right, go back to 1 Corinthians, now in chapter 9, verse 1 again. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1. We've seen this, so we'll just go over it again, and now we'll look into it a little more depth. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me, who are ashamed of me, who put me down, who revile me, is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife? 
even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, Peter, but only Barnabas and I have not have a right to refrain from working. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? Now, I don't know if you picked up on this, but there's something that Paul does over and over and over again here. Now, he talks about different illustrations, so that's not in common. But what he's doing all over and over again is asking questions. Right? Don't you see a lot of question marks in this section? That's what he's doing. He's asking questions. Now, in verse 1, he asks four of them. And if they're being truthful, every answer is yes. You know? Am I free? Yes. Yes, you are. Am I not an apostle? Yes, you are an apostle. Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Yes, you have. Are you not my work in the Lord? Yes, we are. But, of course, there will be people that want to argue all of that, and they'll hear... Not free, and all they'll think about is the stuff he's sacrificed. You're not free, look. You know? And then he says, okay, hold on again. He says, I have the freedom of an apostle. I'm an apostle. And they say, really? You're an apostle? You know, we got people over here that walked with Jesus when he was here. You didn't, Paul. Yeah, I'm not an apostle. Well, I've seen Jesus the Lord. Mm, okay. You doubt even that? Well, here's something you cannot deny. Here we are. You're a Christian congregation. How'd that happen? He's saying at the end of the day, listen, you are the proof that I'm an apostle. Isn't that a powerful argument? The people here in the letter are the very proof that, that Paul is an apostle. The very people that want to doubt it are the proof that he is. I love that. That is. So he's saying, therefore, keep working through it. I have the rights, I have the freedom, and so forth. So he asks questions. He continues to do that in verses 3 through 7. You see, more questions. Do we not have a right to eat? And so forth. A series of questions. Why does he do that? Because it's a great way to argue. Think about it. What happens when you ask a question? A simple question. Well, people want to come with an answer, right? Isn't that how it works? You know, you do trivial pursuit, right? You know, who was the third president of the United States? You don't want to just sit there like a lump on a log. You want to answer the question. That's just human nature. So it is a great way to bring them into the argument, to bring them into the discussion. I mean, we already saw where they have to keep saying yes, yes, over and over again. It reminds me of preparing uh, testimony, where all you want to do is have the witness say yes, 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 and you've built your case by what they say. That's what he's doing here. He's, help, he's make, helping them to build this argument for him. Yes, Paul and Barnabas have a right to eat and drink. Yes, they have a right to take along a believing wife. Yes, they have a right as apostles, preachers of the gospel, to refrain from working, to take on another job. In other words, manual labor. And verses all the way from 3 to 14 are really all about one thing. Okay, if you want to summarize this section tonight, tonight, I guess, that, I, guess I just did a prophecy on how long this message is going to last. This morning, all right, they're all about one thing, all these verses. Paul's rights as an apostle to have all his financial needs met by the saints. That's really what he's talking about here. All the questions that he asks, all the illustrations, it's one thing. Establishing his right as an apostle to have his financial needs met by the saints. His food and his drink, his family, his freedom from needing to take on a second job besides his work as an apostle. He puts all that on the table. And then he asks more questions. He will now ask a series of questions. And again, there's one answer to every one of them. 
One clear answer, no one. No one. Look at verse 7. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Answer? Come on, guys. Wake up, wake up. We only got about 15 more minutes and I'll be done talking. That ugly guy in the suit, why is he wearing a suit? Everybody else is cash here in Florida. So please, just answer me. Who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? No one. Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? No one. Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? You just made my case. Yeah, armies feed, clothe, shelter, and arm their soldiers. Now Paul has risked his very life for the sake of the gospel and the saints. Therefore, he's a soldier. He founded the church at Corinth. He planted the vineyard. He's shepherding this flock, caring for the saints. Therefore, the saints have an obligation to cover his expenses. See, all those illustrations are getting at one point. And it's this one. The saints have an obligation to cover his expenses. He hasn't finished yet. There are some more questions that he's going to have them answer. By the way, this is the same technique that the Lord used with Job. Put him in his place, you know, in chapters 38 to 41. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. That's a tornado, by the way. Be careful. This is the time of year when some of these spin around no close by. But what did he do? He just kept asking him questions. Like, where were you, Job, when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he goes on and he asks questions. A very effective technique. Well, now Paul is going to appeal to the law of Moses. Look at verse 8. I am not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it is written in the law of Moses... You shall not muzzle the ox, prevent him from eating while he is threshing. God is not concerned about oxen, is he? Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? By the way, the fact that he quoted the law of Moses here tells us something. And that is that a significant portion of the church at Corinth were were Jewish people. Right? Because they'd be the one that would be familiar, this familiar, with the book of Deuteronomy, for example. Okay. That's what he cites here. He cites the book of Deuteronomy. He does it again. Uh, We don't think we have time to go there, but in 1 Timothy 5, if you want to read it. um, Let me go there. Yeah, we're not going there, okay, in the interest of time. But if you do, you want to write that down, you'll find out Paul using the same verse in Deuteronomy 25, 4. Only that this time, he's going to use it in connection with the financial support of elders. So he connects the dots between apostle and elder. All right, let's keep reading. 1 Corinthians 9, now in 9b. All right. 9b means the second part of the verse. See, I taught you something. If you didn't learn anything else today, you'd learn a little bit about how the Bible's written. In any event, I know you learned a lot more. He says, yes, for our sake it was written. Because the plowman ought to plow in hope. He's working out there. What is it? Why? Because he knows a laborer is worth his wages. Right? Ought to plow in hope. The thresher should thresh in the hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed, here's the principle, if we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? And if others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. And, and Paul, again, in, in 2 Timothy, actually, let's go there, because I do want you to see this. 
Keep your place in 1 Corinthians 9, but please go to 2 Timothy 2, 3 to 6. If people really think he's talking about oxen and plowmen and threshers, well, Paul's going to spell it out. 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. 2 Timothy 2, 3. Writing to Timothy now, a fellow communicator, in a loose sense, another apostle. Suffer hardship with me as a good soldier. There it is again, of Christ Jesus. No soldier in active service entangles himself in the affairs of everyday life. In other words, you can't leave the base and you know, go for two months and have a vacation in Hawaii, right? You can't do that when you're in the army. You can't entangle yourself in the affairs of everyday life. Why? So that he may please devote himself to the one who enlisted him as a soldier. Also, if anyone competes as an athlete, he doesn't win the prize unless he competes according to the rules. Discipline. The hardworking farmer ought to be the first to receive his share of the crops. Paul and Barnabas were the hardest working when it came to the congregation at Corinth. Therefore, there may be others who have a right, but they ought to be first in line with the share of the crops. Okay, so now here we are. We've seen this this morning. Paul has laid out an amazing case to support as the principle that they ought to take care of his financial needs. Other apostles have the right. Soldiers never serve at their own expense. The planter eats the fruit. The shepherd drinks the milk. The farmer plows in hope. I feel like I'm doing high the Dario. High the Dario, the farmer plows in hope. But he's saying this is his argument, right? And it's a strong argument. How can you argue with that? And then please go back to 1 Corinthians now, 9-11. First Corinthians nine eleven. See, at this point, he's done with all his illustrations. He he's not going to use any more illustrations at this point. What he is going to do in verse eleven, he just comes out and states his case, case in plain Greek. So you didn't do it in English, so. in plain Greek, again in the form of a question, again in the form of a question. Verse eleven: If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? What is he saying? He's saying, if we've given you the most precious things of all, doesn't it stand to reason that you ought to give us material things that are less precious, that we actually need in order to continue sowing the most precious things? That's a pretty strong argument. Because it hinges on the fact that they understand that the spiritual things are eternally valuable. But they really are. You know, in Ephesians 2.5, Paul writes, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Ephesians 3, 5, you don't have to go there. I'll read it to you again, though. To me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles what? His preaching, his sowing was what? The unfathomable riches of Christ. Christ brings unfathomable riches to us. For this life and forever. And he's saying, listen, treasures in heaven are infinitely more valuable than treasures on earth. If we are giving you the treasures from heaven and we need the treasures from earth to continue doing that, doesn't it stand to reason that you ought to provide that? That's, that's his argument. It's a good argument. Verse, let's look at verse 12. Let's keep going as we finish up today. 
If others share the right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, in other words, remember they had the hardworking farmer ought to be first, right? Do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Apparently other preachers were being supported by the church at Corinth. But as we saw in verse 12, their first priority in Corinth ought to be taking care of Paul and Barnabas. Why? Because they're the ones who established the church. They planted it. They taught them. They watered. They fed them. They watched over them. They did all of that. Paul is now finished with a very, very convincing argument that he and Barnabas had the right to be financially supported by the church at Corinth. But what does he do next? He just establishes the right. Yes, you have the right. There it is. And what does he do right after that? He tosses it aside. Right? He says, nevertheless, we did not use this right. I want you to think about it. If the Corinthians were going through all of this, and like, yes, he has, yes, you have the right. Yes, you do. Yes, you absolutely do. What would you expect him to say next? Then, then, then right, then, then act on it, right? Financially support me. He didn't do that. He said, nevertheless, we didn't use this right. I mean, I can imagine by this time when they're reading this out loud to the saints in Corinth, they had probably already started the collection. <laughs> they were ready. But then, he's, then they're like, what? What's that next verse? Never mind. Forget it. We don't need to do a collection. He's not going to use that right. But then right after that, they might say, well, wait a minute, Paul. Why did you lead us along like that? Why did you get us to say yes, 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 and no one, no one, no one, and all that? Why? I'll tell you why. Shock value. Shock value. They never expected at the end of all that for him to say, nevertheless, we did not use that right. They never, that was the last thing that they expected him to say. Why did he do that? Why did he want to shock them at this point? Because he had something he never wanted them to forget. You know, when you, when you want somebody never to forget something, sometimes you shock them into it. Yeah, that's what he's doing. And I think he's done asking questions, so he says, listen, I hope right now you're asking a question. Why? We just saw he clearly has this right to be financially supported by us. Why doesn't he exercise that right? He clearly has it. It would certainly make his life a whole lot easier if he did. I mean, after all, we're, we're just talking about food to eat and Food. Hmm. Weren't you guys talking about your rights to eat certain food just a little while ago? All right. You see, Paul gives up his right for food and drink being provided by them. See, now he's got a little, you don't see this, but he's got a little dig there, right? I'm giving up my right to eat any food. You don't have to provide any of it to me. And here you are trying to stand on your right to eat food sacrificed to idols. Idols which are an insult to our Lord. And by the way, our, that activity could very well cause a brother to stumble. It's got all that against it, and yet you want to stand up for your rights. I have all of this for it, and I'm giving up my rights. I never want you to forget that lesson, Paul says. Here's why I'm not using my right to receive financial support from you right now. Right back to verse 13 in chapter 8. I don't want to do anything that might turn out to be a stumbling block to anybody, to someone, when it comes to the gospel. 
The gospel is so central. It's, it's in my blood. It's everything about my life. I am not going to do a thing that could ever cause what I'm doing to be any kind of stumbling block to anybody when it comes to preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, that's impact. He's, he's not just making the statement anymore. He's talking about his whole life. He's talking about, I'm a role model. Look at how I do it. It's not arrogance. It's just, it's just saying, this is really, really vital for you to understand. Now, why would it be that perhaps someone would see this as a stumbling block if he was getting financial support from preaching the gospel? I'll tell you why. And this goes on all the time. There'd be, there'd be people who at that point would think, you know what? This guy, he's, he's just in it for the money. He never wanted anybody to be able to say that. That's why he did what he did. All right, let's read 13 and 14. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple? And those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? Notice verse 14. He turns this around again. They must have been spinning around in circles. So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. Paul, you you laid out the whole argument that you should have this. Then you say you're not going to exercise it. Then you come back and say that anybody who who proclaims the gospel should get their living from the gospel. Well, why did he say that? It's real simple, actually. He never wanted to leave the impression that the other preachers and apostles were doing something wrong. That's what he wanted to make sure they understand. They're not doing anything wrong. The Lord actually told them that they should get their living from the gospel. They are doing nothing wrong in accepting financial support. In fact, that's the norm. That's how the Lord wants it. The Lord himself directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And that just serves to bring out the point even more. What Paul and Barnabas did was a special sacrifice of their rights for the sake of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas endured a lot. Hunger, thirst, rough treatment slander, so that nothing would hinder the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Since Paul and Barnabas had given up so much for the sake of the gospel, and they had, the saints in Corinth should be willing to give up eating certain meat for the sake of the brethren. Right? Just eating certain meat. Sacrifice to idols. You can still have chicken and lamb, but none of that food sacrificed to idols. Pretty strong argument. If they're willing to give up so much for the sake of the gospel, the saints should be willing to give up eating certain meat for the sake of the brethren. What an example for the Corinthians and for us. Like the Lord did it when he washed the feet of the disciples. He said, I am giving you an example that you should also do as I did to you. Powerful stuff. The example is the most powerful argument. And what's the principle? Jesus laid it out. Paul has the same thing. Love one another as I have loved you. See all I've sacrificed. Put up with all of this for the sake of the gospel that some might be saved. Join the family. That's the love I have. Jesus had the love so much that he was not only willing to wash their feet, which was a sign of humility, almost humiliation. The servants did that. But then he would become the servant of all the next day when he died on the cross. Why? Love for one another. And he's saying, now you do it. You go out there and love one another as I have loved you.
Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you today that we are able to have our minds renewed, to have us challenged in this area that's so unnatural for human beings that they would think of others more than their own needs, that they would uh, give up freedoms for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of other people. Help us to take that to heart. Have the Holy Spirit point out things in our lives where we ought to change. And the power to change is also by means of the Spirit and your grace. So this is amazing, all of it. We thank you, Father, that not only can we see Paul in action, but we can see how what he did relates to our life so that our priorities would be changed as well. Father, in this last moments of the service, I just would like to have an opportunity again to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, that you so love the world, that you gave your one and only Son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. He became man while remaining God. And he lived, and he lived a perfect life, and then he went to the cross and died for the sin of the world. He was buried, and on the third day you raised him from the dead, so that whoever believes this good news about Jesus Christ will never perish. That's the goal. Never perish, but have eternal life. Never be condemned any longer, but instead understand that you've declared them righteous in your eyes. It's a simple thing. A child relates. Just hear good news and believe it. So, Father, as we leave today, we would just ask that we too would have opportunities to be bold in preaching the gospel. Because that's why Jesus sacrificed and Paul sacrificed so much. And we would just ask, Father, for the opportunity and the boldness when that opportunity comes. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Just a reminder, this Thursday we will have Bible study, 7 o'clock. We're starting a new series. All right, we're just done with prayer, and we're going to look at eternal security. The fact that the moment you believe in Christ, you are saved forever. You will never lose your salvation under any circumstances. And not only that, but the Lord wants you to have, be assured of that. Not only is it a fact, but He wants you to know, in your case, that you're absolutely secure forever. So it's a great subject. Hope you'll join us this Thursday at 7. And uh, one other thing, giving policy, got to just remind everybody that we are not tithing here. You may have noticed. We don't have anybody make any pledges, okay? We just do what the Bible says, follow the instructions. And the instructions say that when the Lord has blessed you financially in such a way that you realize you have the ability to give, and by your own freedom and your own love, you want to then give, God doesn't want forcing people. He wants a cheerful giver. That's the best thing. That's, that's what? That is the same principle. Think about the needs of others, not just my own needs. And you have the ability to do that because God has your back. And that's how he wants you to see giving. All right. We're going to close in prayer once again. Just know that I'll be here up at the front of the church here. I'm sitting on the stage. In case you have any questions today, don't be shy. Just come on up and I'll do my best to answer them. Heavenly Father, once again, we just want to thank you for all your gifts, mostly, most importantly, your Son, Jesus Christ. And we just also pray today, Father, that we would have the clarity of thinking to deal with whatever's coming our way through the mind of Christ. We ask this in his name by the power of the Spirit. Amen. And with that, you're dismissed. Enjoy Sunday.